The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Why don't you go ahead and uh, have a seat and get comfortable and open your Bibles back up to Genesis chapter 5. Thank you, Ben and Natalie, for leading us this morning. Well, I am uh, I'm delighted to be bringing God's Word this morning and thankful to God to show such grace and entrusting me to do so. And before we do so, would my brothers and sisters join me in prayer one more time? And indeed, Father, uh, we have come to that time and place with uh, your word opened, our hearts prepared by um, the singing of praise and song to you. And as I approach this time, being uh, entrusted with this opportunity, I'm reminded, even as I read this morning, of the power and the authority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That encounter of the two men possessed by demons on the road to Gerardin, I believe, is the name, but, but these men were so fierce in their demon possession that no one could pass by the way. And here, Jesus, you confronted them, or you came to that space, and they came to you, and there was, not, there was only one word you spoke, Jesus, and it was after they were crying out, have you come here to torment us before the time and are pleading, you, you know, the Son of God, and, and then they beg of you, please, would you just send us to the herd of pigs over there? And here you are, Jesus, you're just standing before them, these, these men that no one was able to, to go by that way, and you stood there, they pleaded to you to, to not destroy them before the time. They pleaded to you to send them to the pigs, and you said, go. And that was it. The authority, the power of you, Lord Jesus, is beyond measure, and I marvel at you. And I ask for a supply of your Holy Spirit to allow the preaching of this word to come forth with the same power and authority. Please bless this time. I pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Welcome back, Stazaks. Most of you, as far as uh, from Mexico, I've been thinking about and praying over you guys and the waiters over there. Looking forward to hearing about that time. But as we give our attention to God's word this morning in Genesis chapter 5, um, I'll open this morning's sermon with a question. The question is, what was God's first promise in Scripture? Promise now, not, not covenant, but promise. For there is a difference between the two. 
though they are very much the same. Covenant is an agreement between two parties that is based on promises and has a sign or a seal of the covenant given to it, right? For instance, next week, we will be learning about the first covenantal promise in the Bible, and that is what God made with Noah, the Noahic covenant, The sign given to it for that covenant was the rainbow. That was the sign of that covenant. A bit later in Genesis, we'll hear about the Abrahamic covenant. The sign of that one is marked by circumcision. Okay? And even the the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, has this agreement, this this promise between the two parties sealed by a wedding ring. There is a seal, the sign. So, So covenant is very much a promise, whereas every promise made by God is not a covenant. Additionally, a promise of God's does not need the word promise attached to it for it to be a promise. For example, God says, even prayed this morning by Ben, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a wonderful promise of God's that does not have the word promise in it. And furthermore, I would say it, I would say it not to be a covenant. Similar for Jesus saying that he will return one day and take us home to be with him forever. Or his promise to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Likewise, the the wonderful invitation promise to come to me, all who labor and are are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Found in Matthew 11, 28. Or in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, every need of yours will be added to you. I mean, all of those, all of these are glorious promises of our God in Christ, but not covenants. So, what would you say then is the first promise in the Bible. I believe, I believe it to be what follows his first command in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And the Lord commanded, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for, now here it is, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I hear that as a promise warning. Sort of like, you touch that hot stove, Judah? Judah, you touch that hot stove, you are going to get burned. And I could say, I promise you will, but I wouldn't need to say a promise for that word to stand as true. And if Judah were to reach out and touch that stove, ignoring my word, he would indeed be burned. Adam and Eve, they reached out. 
ignored God's word. They took of the fruit they were told not to, and they died. Just as God said they would, his promise wasn't broken. They died spiritually in their intimate relationship with God, and they would have died physically had not a type of covering for their sin taken place by the sacrifice of an animal to make clothing to cover their nakedness, which is foreshadowing a substitutionary atonement, the Mosaic law, under the old covenant instituted and Christ ultimately fulfilled in his body that was sacrificed, they, Adam and Eve, died just as God said they would. God's promise wasn't broken. The next unbreakable promise in God's word comes shortly after when he is rendering the curse due to sin. He addresses a serpent. And what does he promise in Genesis 3.15? I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Did you catch that? Ben spoke to this a couple of weeks back. God saying to the serpent, the offspring of the woman, you know, a man born of a woman will bruise your head, an ultimate death blow. Okay, he shall bruise your head, serpent, but you and you will bruise his heel. That's not an ultimate death blow, though it is speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ carried out by the works of Satan through lawless men. Bruise his heel. Jesus suffered the death and cruelty of crucifixion, which served the purposes of God, who through Jesus Christ forever defeated Satan's sin and death by raising him, him, Jesus, from the grave. Being that it was not possible for him to be held by death, for Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, meaning, meaning death has no hold on him. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Jesus lived a sinless life. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God's law, rendering sin powerless over him and death void of strength to keep Jesus in the grave. The next unbreakable promise of God is his word that what has gone wrong will be made right. That Satan, sin, and death will be done away with forever. The first proclamation of good news of salvation. Proto-evangelium. The first proclamation of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. God is the first to make that proclamation. God's unbreakable promise to his image bearers when they first sinned. And like all of God's promises, they are unbreakable. They are unbreakable, which is the truth I aim to have forever sealed in your heart and mind along with mine together this morning. The unbreakable promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
and using the analogy of how a rock-hard diamond is formed out of coal over long periods of time while under intense pressure and heat. In contrast to that, we'll see how the unbreakable promises of God in Christ, who is our rock, withstand, withstand the test of time and the intense pressure and heat test of evil. Okay? The unbreakable promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, point one, withstand the test of time. Our first point, God's promises withstand the test of time. And we'll see this looking at all of chapter 5, verses 1 through 32. The bulk of which is the genealogy from Adam to Noah. The line through which the promised offspring, fulfilled in Christ, would come through to bruise the head of the serpent, to defeat Satan. The opening two verses are a brief recap of creation of man and bear repeating because... God repeats it. So, so let's start there to hear once again the crystal clear, open statement of truth from, from God's word in verses 1 through 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created crystal clear. I love how that just summary, God wants to once again just emphasize this is how it began. This is how man began. This is who they are, whom I have made and named. From verse 3 to 32 now is a methodological breakdown of a specific man by name, the age he was when he had his first son, and the name he gave them and how many years he lived before he died after having other sons and daughters. And this sequence repeats itself. Then for the the son whose name is given, and, and on it goes all the way to Noah. Okay? That's pretty pretty clear in in how we read through it. So question. Question who is to say that Eve didn't think that God's promise of the offspring of the woman to bruise the serpent's head? Who is to say that she wasn't thinking it to be be fulfilled in her lifetime? We even even get hints of this in Genesis 4.1. Check it out. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Eve gave birth to the first child, the first offspring of a woman by the help of the Lord. Like, here's the help. (laughs) The serpent's head is going to be crushed by my offspring. The offspring has arrived, like, in your face, serpent. Here it is. Here's the answer. It's over. Your time is short. Not so. Cain turns out to be a murderer. He turns out to be a murderer. That's not good. (laughs) Not the one to bruise the serpent's head. Rather, this one's more aligned with the head, with the serpent's head in way of thinking and acting. 
how much time then, how much time then lapses before the promised one does come? This had to be a question circulating during this time as they shared the story over and over again with family, right? Family that continued to be added to. They were fruitful and they multiplied, just as God said they would. More offspring came. More offspring came. Yet which one of these offspring will bruise the serpent's head and restore us to the garden place that we've heard so much about? Like, which one? When is this going to happen? I, I see these conversations taking place, these, these questions being asked. I mean, why wouldn't they, right? They know the story. Great-grandfather, who's still alive after 500 years, still in the same story, right? Now, to gain some perspective on what this time was and what it looked like, I did some math, I did some math, and fortunately, it was just basic addition. Okay, it's been a while since I've been in school. So basic addition, I can handle it. And I added up the age each man given at the time they first fathered a son in their, li- in their own likeness and named them. And that, I mean, that's, the numbers are given to us there. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered Seth. Seth lived 105 years at the time he fathered Enosh. And it continues. And I believe that to be an accurate way to get a number, maybe not like the precision pinpoint, but, you know, a number, perhaps it was, number for the number of years during this course of time from Adam to Noah. That number being 1,556 years. That's what it was if you did the math. 1,556 years since Adam to Noah. Since the first man was made to when Noah fathered his three sons. So now consider, within this 1,556 years, Adam lived a total of 930 930 years of it. Seth 912 years from the time Adam was 130. Enosh, 905 years from the time Seth was 105. My point being, the majority of the offspring of Adam and Eve are still living within this 1,556 expanse of time. When Adam and Eve are still... When Adam and Eve are still, I just lost my place. Ah, Of time when the average age of existence is somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 years, give or take a century. All right? Give or take a century. I mean, these, most of the people are living. There hasn't been a lot of deaths, mostly births. Kind of like Pillar right now is all births for this season. The day will come, but... All births, okay? So time is passing. Well over 1,500 years and counting. Offspring are being born of a woman over and over again. The serpent's head has yet to be bruised. Do you think there are those wondering, has God forgotten his promise? 
can you sense there must have been by some this, this, this waiting on God's promises to be fulfilled? We'll see evidence of this faith in the genealogy given in chapter 5 here. First off, though, first off, who do you think was the first to wait? I believe it was God. I believe God was the first to wait. Romans, why do I believe that? Romans 3, 23 through 25. I believe that passage from Paul gives us this insight. Speaking of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, who are all justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, the blood of Jesus, to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine, now here it is, saints, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Forbearance. A a holding back. A delay, a a restraint. A restraint to what? a restraint to kill Adam and Eve on the spot for sinning against him. That was justice. That was the restraint. He didn't. And every sinner following Adam and Eve to kill them on the spot the moment they sinned. In his divine forbearance, he withheld that just immediate punishment according to the time when Christ would come on the scene and fulfill his promise to bruise the serpent's head, defeat Satan, sin, and death. And, and even now, God is still, wait, as we wait the promised second coming of Christ, God is still patient towards us. He is still patient towards us, not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards us, desiring that every one of his lost sheep would reach repentance. Second Peter 3.9 tells us this. He's patient towards us, thereby that we would safely, every one of his beloved would be safely returned to him and forever with him. God was the first to wait and we are to wait patiently along with him on his unbreakable promises through the test of time. And there are three gems within this genealogy I see to be helpful in us doing so. The first is about a man who was so tight with God, as Nathan stated it last week, so tight with God that God just just took him. Just took him. Enoch didn't die. God just took him. Genesis 5, verse, verse 24 here. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Man, could that be the way that I exit here, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to go that way? I want to be that close to you, God, that perhaps 
in your good pleasure, you just decide you're coming home now. I'm just taking you in this moment. So what does Enoch show us? What do we, what do we see in the life of Enoch? Saints of greatest importance, we see, we know that he had saving faith. He had saving faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 through 6, tell us that by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever, now this is very important about faith, so pay attention, church. For whoever, oh, backing up a little bit. For without faith, it is impossible to please him, him, God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There is no, there is no walking with God without saving faith present. Even in the Old Testament, from the time humans first walked the face of the earth, faith was necessary for them to be accepted by God. And genuine faith commended by God or or pleasing to him is one that believes God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Isn't that reminiscent of another promise of God's? First Chronicles 28, verse 9. Know the Lord, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and, a, and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If promise indicator there, promise indicator there, if, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What a beautiful interwoven promise there. It's glorious. Genuine saving faith in action that is commended by God and necessary to draw near and walk with God as Enoch did. To be tight with God, whereby great help comes from God to patiently wait the test of time upon his unbreakable promises. Remember, God was the first to wait. He, he's a foundation of knowing how to wait. Walk with him and draw strength to wait on him on the very promises he's made to us. Notice also, there's a fun numeric observation that I believe carry insight. How many years did Enoch live before God took him? Verse 23, 
365 years. How many days are in a year? 365 days in a year. Enoch walked with God 365 years. There are 365 days in a year. What can we glean from that? I believe walking, which encompasses a sweet relationship between you and God that involves talking and listening, prayer and meditation, an active reading of his word. Active meaning you ask for his help to understand his word and for his help that it would be manifest in your life through obedience to it. That is walking with God, which is to be, going back to the 365, daily, ongoing, continual. Not something you, you step into here or, or, or there. You know, to, to be tight with God means you are walking with him every waking hour of every day throughout every year of your life. That's walking with God. I mean, I don't see that 365 as coincidence. I see it as pay attention, child. Continual. Always be close to me. To be tight with me. And if you are not walking with God, then the only thing that will, that will restore you to being so is repentance. If you are not walking with God, then you are walking away from God. I mean, I just do not see any middle ground there. And nor does the Bible. That's why, that's why Martin Luther rightly ascribed the Christian life as one that is practicing repentance. You know, whether it's made known to you, or whenever, rather, whenever it is made known to you that you are not walking with, you know, with God, according to his will, doing that which is pleasing in his sight, fulfilling his purpose in your life, Psalm 57, 2, when it is made known that you have veered or departed from that, then repentance is necessary. And with that, that's, that's why the Christian life just balances this, this paradox, if you will, of just feeling like a maggot, right? Sometimes the Bible says that. I love how it says that because it's so picturesque of the scum we feel when we recognize our sinfulness, when we are aware of it, sense it, that we are less than nothing. We have great disdain over our own sinfulness while, let's balance this out, while at the same time being filled with joy and wonder that Christ is formed in you, that you are a child of God, sanctified by his word and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, forever sealed, sealed and secure in Christ, who laid down his life that you may be a fellow heir with him for all eternity whom the whole creation is waiting. <laughs> That's an amazing passage. The whole creation is waiting with eager longing. There's a longing there in creation, groaning together in the pains of childbirth, waiting to be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, the revealing of the sons of God, of whom you, church, that we are in Christ. I mean, that's the paragraph. Yes, I'm a maggot, and here's the other end. Keeping that well-balanced tension between the two. I mean, is this not what we see balanced with Paul in Romans 7? 
16 through 25. I just, I feel this every time I read through it. What does he say there? He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me is doing the thing I hate to do. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law. Like, this is a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. There's that tension, right? It lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul just climaxed there, but then he says this. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He's seeking an answer, a deliverance. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, do you guys feel his angst, his disdain, his self-loathing? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is, this is a healthy inward emotion of your own sinfulness. It ought to be felt while, while, what does Paul then go, what does he bring into the space of self-loathing from the question he poses of who will deliver me from this body of death? He brings Jesus into that picture. I thank Jesus Christ, my Lord, who then Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, which stems from our prayer this morning, which we erupt in thankfulness continually, right? Paul goes on to say in that, that he has set me free. I am no longer condemned, but set free to set my mind on that which is life and peace. In other words, to walk with God according to the spirit of Christ who dwells in him. And so it is with every Christian. It's a beautiful example, a grounding example of that humble posture that leaps and rejoices because of Christ. Like, yes, this body, me, Seth, you, my fellow Christian, brother and sister in Christ, although our body is dead because of sin, as we feel it to be, the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us is life because of righteousness. His righteousness, not ours, His. And so if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the grave dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit that dwells in you. Wow, I mean, do you see, or should I say, Rather, do you feel that paradox? Loathe my sinfulness while simultaneously rejoice in the life of Christ that dwells in me by his spirit. 
that assures me of every promise of God. A flourishing Christian keeps this balanced, proper tension between the two. Leaning heavily in either direction will result in either a self-righteous, lofty-minded Christian or a spiritually paralyzed, inept, miserable Christian, neither of which are welcomed company to be around. May we walk with God according to the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us with proper balance of that Christian paradox. Balance that tension to be like the, like the tax collector standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like, ah, but then balanced with a great delight and celebration of God, seen in King David, who was dancing and leaping before the Lord, leaping before the Lord, have such a heart that both of these dwell together whereby great help comes to patiently wait the test of time upon his unbreakable promises. The second diamond nugget shining through as a help to us is another gem of faith seen in Lamech. For look at what Lamech says about the son born to him in Genesis 5.29. Lamech called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, (laughs) this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This one, I think this is it. This one, doesn't that, doesn't that, does not that portray that Lamech had hope? He had a hope. Hope was alive in Lamech, who names his son on the very hope he had in God's promises made to his ancestor over 1,500 years ago. The promise of God to make things right. Is that not faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidences are the evidence of things not yet seen. Hebrews 11.1. I see substance in Lamech. I see substance there in Lamech. I see faith, glorious faith, the preservation of faith on the earth. God is preserving a remnant of his own throughout all time. By God's grace, he preserves a faithful few among the many. He did then, and he's doing so now. He promises so. The last sparkle last diamond sparkle shining through, assuring us that God's unbreakable promise
will withstand the test of time is, an, is another numeric play. And God's sovereignty. Look how God answers back to the, bo- to the boast made by Lamech from the line of Cain. Do you remember him from chapter 4? It's a different Lamech, okay? His great, great, great grandfather, Cain, murdered his brother, Abel, his own brother, Abel. On this trajectory of death, the Lamech in chapter 4 from the line of Cain, he makes this boast. Do you remember this? He makes this boast to his wives, Ada and Zillah. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. How many years did Lamech, from the line of Seth, here in chapter 5, how many years did he live? 777. The prior Lamech's life, representing death, while the Lamech here in verses 28 through 31, exhibiting faith, therefore representing life. It's as if God is answering back to that boast made, my promises, hear me, my promises will completely be completed. You killed Abel, there is hope. My promise is unbreakable. The offspring will come. They will be fulfilled at the proper time. God's time, not sooner and not later. The unbreakable promises of God in Christ withstand the test of time. And the intense pressure and heat test of evil. Our second point as we move into chapter 6 of Genesis. Genesis 6, 1 through 7. God's promises withstand the test of evil. Evil that is intense. Opposing pressure of wickedness that's just ever increasing. For look at verse 5 in chapter 6. Verse 5 in chapter 6. In the midst of the first seven verses of this chapter that speak of this horrific state of the world, he says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A little over 1,500 years has lapsed and aside from some remnant faith preserved by God through that time? What does God, who looks upon the heart of man and not the outward appearance, what does he have to say about man? Every intention of the thoughts of man, of his heart, is only evil continually. It doesn't get any darker or grievous in departure from how God made things to be at the beginning. Man multiplies on the face of the earth, as verse 1 states, and this is where they have arrived. Now, 
I find it important to clarify something here. There are two different descriptions given to man in these first seven verses of chapter 6 that, that may cause confusion. They are sons of God and Nephilim. Sons of God simply, should simply be understood as image bearers made in the likeness of God. Glancing back to the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. Bump a touch ahead to verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. You see how this this made in the likeness of God fathered a son in his own likeness after his image then named them? You see how this, this carries on starting from God to Adam and then from Adam to Seth and so on? So in that manner of speaking, we are all sons of God made in the likeness of God after his image. This should, this should mean nothing more in that context. Now, adopted sons and daughters of God in Christ, filled with his spirit, united to him by faith, is a whole other category on its own. Don't confuse one with the other. Sons of God here is speaking of being made in the likeness of God, in the image of God. And during these days, on the earth, there were the Nephilim, none other than giants, big men, which is what that word Nephilim translated is, giants, not involving any angelic being. For, I mean, consider, for in the resurrection, as Jesus stated in Matthew twenty-two thirty, in the resurrection, when this life is done, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, any sexual intercourse is not something taking place in heaven or of interest to any angelic beings, whether fallen or not. Now, sex is certainly leveraged by fallen angels with perversion and distortion to ruin the lives of men and women made in the image of God, but, but nothing more than that. So I understand the sons of God and the Nephilim to be none other than men whose every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And those who are the Nephilim, or giants in the land, had children who were likewise, you know, in their likeness, big, large, were men of renown, who by their sheer size dominance over others, I believe, likely ruled as their evil hearts pleased. For consider, 
This, this is all before God's law is established. God's law was not established yet. There's no form of government provided to man when they were driven out of the garden by God. Scripture provides no indication of such. So, how did ruling hierarchy get determined? How did they determine that? Before advanced military weapons were made, when evil abounds, how do you think hierarchy is established in a society? Especially when the thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually. Brute physical strength. Brute physical strength. I believe the biggest of the men were likely the ones to run things. Like giants ruled by mere force. Take what they want when they want. Expressions of this are recorded in Scripture. Verse 2, to be precise. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took. They took as their wives any they chose. Took. Any. Any they chose. They saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took, take, whomever as they please. I mean, there's just, there's no hint of courtship taking place here. Chivalry is not dead. It's not even born yet. Noble qualities of honor, courtesy, justice, and a readiness to help the weak were not in existence. Sinful man governing themselves in the absence of God's law and the birth of Christianity is nothing short than barbaric. This has nothing to do with man's intellectual ability and skill. Nothing at all. And we have already seen great skill and ability from the early stages of creation. Tremendous ability. But that doesn't determine one's character of heart. We saw this with Lamech from the line of Cain, even way back then, not many generations. You know, in his boasting statements about killing a man, and who also just took wives, took wives similar to what we read here. These men are not courting women's hand in marriage. No, they are, they are taking whom they please with absolute disregard for human rights. I mean, think about this. What does a, what does a bouncer in a bar look like? Or example for the kids, you know, what does a security guard who doesn't need a sidearm, what is he going to look like? Like, not like me. Usually someone with Tim Weta or Nathan Lundgren's height and D. Hart's bulkiness, okay? It's that combination. You know, picture like the, the Rock, Dwayne Johnson. I mean, that guy is monstrous. It doesn't matter who he stands next to. He is huge. It's like a building. Or here's one. Picture Andre the Giant and Dear Wesley in hand-to-hand combat. Do you remember that scene in Princess Bride? I mean, the head circumference discrepancy itself is comical. When he has him in that chokehold, you can't miss it. It's like this little tennis ball and a bowling ball. I mean, it's tremendously different. In real life, my money is on Andre the Giant to defeat Wesley, and quite easily, I might add. And I know David beat Goliath, but it wasn't without the help of the Lord. So these men of renown, 
These large men, they just do as they please with only evil thoughts and intentions of their heart continually. And it ought to help paint a picture of the oppression and the darkness of these days in which God, looking upon it all, is so grieved in the heart by it that he declare, or that he decides to wipe the slate clean. Like animals and all. I mean, even the animals... And it, who are not the problem. We are the problem. Sinful man is a problem. But sadly, they, the animals, they suffer because of us. So this begs the question, will God's promise come through in the end in the face of such intense evil? Verse 7. God's grace shines through. Let's go ahead and read that. Verse 7. Rather, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Though God says in verse 3, after seeing what has become of man on the face of the earth, my spirit will not ab- shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. His promise remains alive, unbreakable. For Noah finds favor in the eyes of God. A remnant of faith is preserved on the earth through whom God shows himself faithful to fulfill his promise made at the beginning and every promise made since. His promises are unbreakable. They always come through in the end. God's grace shines through. And unlike a diamond, a rock-hard diamond that's forged over time through intense pressure and heat, that itself can easily shatter with a forceful hit of a hammer. The unbreakable promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord that withstand the test of time and the intense pressure and heat test of evil will actually shatter any forceful blow made against it. Anything made against it, it will shatter it. That's a promise. Nothing can shatter. Nothing can break it. And it's a truth secured to us by the blood of Jesus that we can rest upon. Let's pray. And Father, how thankful we are, how how blessed we are to know such truth of your word, of your promises. They are unbreakable. They cannot be thwarted. And Father, perhaps even during this time, there have been promises circulating in our mind that we are waiting upon you, that are going through the test of time or the, the intense heat and pressure tense of opposition, of hostility, of just, of, of, of obstinance. Perhaps it's even a promise of seeking you, that you will be found. That is a promise, and we've been doing so, but we've, we're still not experiencing that which we hear about. 
Or maybe it's the, the promise of train your child up in the way they should go. And when they're older, they'll not depart. Like on that promise, God, I'm waiting for you to cash in on that promise. It's time. I believe it's time. Or maybe the promise, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. Your provision, your promise to provide, to keep our eyes set upon you and you are taking care of every detail of our lives. To trust you with that, God. You are trustworthy. And these promises that are treasures to us, that are, that are put to the test through time, through difficulty, through opposition, God, may we walk with you like Enoch walked, drawing from your strength, your patience to patiently wait upon you, not doubting your promises, not thinking you're slow to fulfill it, but knowing and trusting in your goodness that you have perfect intentions in your timing and in your means to bring them about. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your church and this time given this morning together. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.